So when you think about being able to access the immense treasures of heritage that the world has to offer, think a little bit as well about digital preservation. Just like we do with the buildings and sites on UNESCO's World Heritage List, we need to ensure that these digital cultural objects are properly preserved. You're listening to To Preserve and Protect Contemporary Issues in Irish Cultural Heritage A podcast series from the Royal Irish Academy funded by the Heritage Council To listen back to other episodes in the series check out our page on the Royal Irish Academy's website at ria.ie Dr Natalie Harrower is Director of the Digital Repository of Ireland In this podcast, she discusses digital cultural heritage. So in this podcast, I'm going to talk about digital heritage, and in particular, how digital technologies can contribute to the archiving and preservation of that heritage. So to get started by way of parallel, if you're familiar with UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, then you've probably heard of the UNESCO World Heritage List, which names natural and cultural sites around the world that are considered exceptional to world heritage. By UNESCO's definition, all properties on this list are considered to be of outstanding value to humanity. That is, they're important to all the peoples of the world, irrespective of the territory on which they are located. The purpose of this list is to inscribe the sites defined by the World Heritage Convention as crucial for preservation, uh, to identify sites that need to be protected and preserved because of their inestimable value to humanity. There are currently 1,092 sites on this list, including two in Ireland. That's Skellig Michael off the coast of Kerry and the Boyne Valley, which is best known for the passage tombs of Newgrange, Nouth and Douth. So you may be well familiar with the concept of important heritage sites and UNESCO's role in preserving them, But what is less famous or less well known at this point is that UNESCO also has a charter on the preservation of digital heritage. This charter recognizes that the world's heritage is increasingly being produced, distributed, accessed, and maintained in digital form. And this heritage must also be preserved alongside the physical entities that make up the World Heritage List. The Charter on the Preservation of Digital Heritage was adopted in 2003, roughly 30 years after the World Heritage Convention. So when I talk about digital cultural heritage in this podcast, I'll be coming at it mostly from the perspective of the preservation of that digital heritage and how that may differ or have unique requirements that diverge from the preservation of our physical or material heritage. And I suppose what I'm interested in is not just how we preserve digital heritage, but also how we go about collecting that heritage and how this may differ from the way that we collect material heritage. And to make this comparison, you can think about the role that memory institutions play in caring for our heritage. The glam sector, galleries, libraries, archives, and museums have long collected objects in order to conserve them, and to share them with researchers and the general public. And the objects they collect, the paintings, manuscripts, domestic artifacts, posters, sculpture, audio recordings, political documents, and so on, 
These are vital to constructing a record of human history and creating understanding from that history. The vast cultural stockpile of the past provides a window into the pathways and milestones of civilization and ultimately into what it means to be human. So this is why there is such outrage and indeed real pain and sorrow when a significant memory institution is lost, such as Brazil's National Museum in Rio de Janeiro, which was consumed by a catastrophic fire in September 2018. All of those important collections lost forever. Memory institutions build their collections based on objects that are deemed significant to human history, and that's done under one set of criteria or another. And we could talk about the politics of collecting and what constitutes a significant object, uh, but that, I think, is the subject for an entirely different podcast. The act of collecting creates a body of objects, and those objects need to be sorted and arranged in some kind of way. Sometimes they need to be identified first. Where did this come from? What is its provenance? How old is it? Who or where or when was it created? And maybe even why was it created? But even objects that are known to us need to be catalogued. They need to be noted as part of an institution's collections and described so that visitors can understand them and their significance, curated for display or storage and attended to carefully so that they can be conserved and survive over the long term. And I think most of us understand what these archival activities mean to some extent. For example, picture yourself in a museum of natural history, where you can walk up to a massive dinosaur skeleton that looms down over you. You understand that it probably didn't come out of the ground all shiny and white and assembled in perfect order. The bones had to be painstakingly collected and cleaned. They had to be transported, analyzed, identified, and put together into that skeleton that you see. Or think about viewing an ancient manuscript behind a glass case, and the gold leaf that decorates the text kind of twinkles in the light. You might understand that some work was done to restore a bit of that twinkle. So significant research goes into methods for conservation and restoration, to try and present objects in their best light before the harshness of climate and human history affected them. It may be less obvious what goes into the conservation of other objects, but archivists will know that you can't just take a piece of paper and put it in any random box on a shelf in a random room and expect it to survive over time. Steps have to be taken to ensure the material is preserved. The temperature and the humidity have to be controlled, for example. And importantly, the box needs to be labeled and cataloged so you know where to find it, and so that someone else who is sorting through shelves in the future knows what to expect when they come upon that box. Simply storing it alone is usually not sufficient if you want it to last the test of time. So what I'm getting at here is that there are many processes in place to ensure the survival of collected heritage objects, so that ultimately they can be seen or heard or studied well into the future. So we understand that conserving aging objects is a task that requires care and expertise. But this understanding is not as well developed when it comes to what I will call digital objects. And increasingly, the cultural outputs of humanity are being created in digital form. So to use a term that's popular in digital preservation circles, these objects are born digital, which means that their entrance into our world of heritage objects is in a digital format. They don't exist in any prior form. So if you have a smartphone, 
or you use any social media platform like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, or YouTube, you'll be familiar with the billions of digital images and videos continually floating through cyberspace, and indeed you probably contribute to them. We've become very good at sharing images. The moment between creation and publication, or between snapping a pic and sharing it with anyone and everyone is almost instantaneous. But have you thought about where you will find these images in five years' time? Or how about 10 or 20 years' time? Photographs have long constituted important elements of our cultural heritage. But with this proliferation of born digital photographs, we have to put the same care and the same effort and ongoing attention into preserving them as we do with material objects. Now you might be thinking at this point, but not all selfies and cat pictures on my phone are important enough to be considered cultural heritage. And, and you'd be right, this is true. But what is also true is that this has long been the case. Archivists and collectors and conservators have long practiced the appraisal of objects to determine what may and what may not be worth keeping from the vast array of objects created by humans. This is nothing new. What is new is the overwhelming scale of what is being produced in digital form compared to analog formats. The scale has changed significantly and the velocity of creation has also changed. And these aspects provide technical challenges for preservation as well as curatorial challenges. But regardless, if we want to retain a reliably honest reflection of our culture and society, if we want to collect items that will constitute our heritage for the future, then we need to tackle these challenges head on. Just like we do with the buildings and sites on UNESCO's World Heritage List, or the treasures that fill galleries, libraries, museums, and archives around the world, we need to ensure that these digital cultural objects are properly preserved. And increasingly, our cultural heritage is born digital, whether it be photographs and videos, or manuscripts, works of art, music, architectural drawings, or the never-ending correspondence that we generate on multiple platforms every day. So it's important to consider the responsibility we have to preserve digital cultural heritage, along with the same consideration that we give to the preservation of world heritage sites. And digital objects are at a slight disadvantage in this case because they lack the bulky and obvious material presence that comes with our pre-digital heritage. They hide away on computers and they disappear from view when the screen is turned off, or more likely when your hardworking phone battery dies. Digital objects are fragile and fickle. They can disappear in an instant, as anyone writing a college essay in the wee hours of the night before it is due can attest to. People often confuse preservation with storage, thinking that if you back up files onto your hard drive or put them into the cloud, that you've done what is necessary to preserve them. But in reality, simply storing files or backing them up is not sufficient to ensure their survival, because the digital ecosystem that is required to render those files accessible is continually changing. So to be able to view an historical document that was created on vellum or papyrus, um, its physical form needs to be preserved over time to ensure the ink doesn't fade or the material on which it has been written doesn't disintegrate. But to view a digital document over time, you need computer hardware and appropriate software to open the format that the digital document is saved in. We know that at their core, digital objects are actually a complex series of ones and zeros. But just looking at the ones and zeros doesn't reveal anything meaningful on its own. It needs to be rendered in a way that you can see. 
So our experience of the digital is always mediated and it's reliant on this ecosystem to make it possible and the components of this ecosystem can also change over time. Also, digital objects are subject to decay and loss, just like material objects. Files can actually degrade. Those ones and zeros can flip over time in a process known as bit rot, or the media that you store them on can become worn and damaged. File formats also become obsolete and no longer supported by common software and hardware. So digital preservation as a continually evolving process aims to tackle these very challenges and to ensure not only that digital objects persist over time, but importantly, that we can access them in a way that reveals them to be as they were meant to be. The technology and processes of digital preservation are different from those applied to the conservation of a physical object, but in the end, the goals really are the same, to ensure that important objects remain accessible in the future. So I won't go into the technical steps and innovations created to support digital preservation, but I will say that a lot of excellent work is being done globally to develop this field and ensure the preservation of our digital heritage. The knowledge and technology is very well developed, but the task, because of the scale of digital outputs, is still really large and it can seem overwhelming at times when viewed on a global scale. But the very good news about this is that digital technologies can also be employed in the service of preserving our material cultural heritage. In fact, the creation of digital copies of material objects, what we call digital surrogates, can actually aid in the preservation of those material objects over time. So if you digitize an object, that is you photograph it to a high standard, then the digital version can be used in a number of ways. So most obviously this digital surrogate can be widely shared so that countless people can see it and enjoy it without adding any kind of wear or tear to the original. Also, digital surrogates can serve as a record of a physical object or indeed heritage site at a particular point in time, so that if the original is broken or destroyed or simply worn by the weather, there is a record that can be consulted by conservators to aid in the restoration of that object. Many archives are digitizing old manuscripts for the express purpose of preserving their fragile pages from further decay. In fact, some very exciting things are going on right now that employ digital technologies to preserve other aspects of cultural heritage. For example, Oxford University has an Institute for Digital Archaeology that is running a project to document and actually capture in 3D heritage sites around the world. And they're focusing on sites that are at risk in the Middle East. And their idea is to build up a massive database of 3D images of archaeological sites. Uh, they gather these images through cameras uh, that are used by volunteers. And then they aim to recreate these sites using 3D printing. So amazingly, they were able to recreate Palmyra's Ark of Triumph. This is a 2,000-year-old monument at a UNESCO World Heritage Site that was destroyed by ISIS in 2015 in what is now present-day Syria. So in 2016, they reconstructed the Ark at scale and they installed it at London's Trafalgar Square in an act of solidarity with Syrians. Closer to home, the Discovery Program, which is doing great things in Ireland in digital archaeology, was a partner in a European project called 3D Icons. And this project spent three years creating 3D models and a range of other images, texts, and videos of internationally important monuments and buildings. In Ireland, over 130 of these were captured, including Ireland's World Heritage Sites, 
And, and the detail that you can see freely online when you view these 3D models is absolutely remarkable. You can see all of the nooks and crannies and crevices of the stone that creates these monuments. It's incredibly moving what can be achieved in the preservation of cultural heritage through digital techniques. So if I go back to where I started in this podcast, I was talking about digital cultural heritage as something we need to care for alongside material cultural heritage. But it's quite clear that these two aspects of heritage are actually already cross-pollinating in a variety of ways. Memory institutions are increasingly using digital surrogates to engage audiences online, or they're employing digital technologies and games and interactive exhibits to connect with their visitors. Digital engagement has actually become a key aspect of museum outreach. But despite the incredibly important role that digital technologies can play in both preserving and making available our heritage, there still remains in some circles a suspicion of the digital. Uh, some concern that digital reproductions or the process of creating and sharing digital surrogates will equate to some kind of loss. And from what I can see, the concern appears to fall into two camps. The first camp is concerned with not so much the challenge or the effort of digitization, but in fact, the ease of what it enables. There is the thought that if a cultural institution makes digital surrogates of its collections freely available online, that nobody will care to visit the building anymore, or that they'll fail to be sustainable as institutions. And some of this concern is rightly tied up in copyright issues, which may limit the permission that an institution has to display objects in its collections. But in many cases, the reticence to share online is unfounded. In fact, several studies have shown that making collections available online actually increases user engagement and can attract audiences to visit the institution in person. Online access, in fact, democratizes access to cultural heritage, reaching the millions of people online who would never be able to visit the museum in the first place, and also enhancing the experience of those who do. Of course, depending on the kind of object, seeing the digital might be a quite uh, different experience than seeing the original. For example, in the case of visiting World Heritage sites in their original locations, as opposed to viewing images of them on screen. But this difference is hardly an argument against creating the digital surrogates. So I said that the concern or suspicion with the digital falls into two camps. The second camp seems to be concerned that something is lost in the reproduction itself, either something real and identifiable, such as detail, color, texture, or something more intangible. So to explore this case, I'd like to borrow from the work of a very great philosopher and cultural critic, Walter Benjamin, who's probably best known for his 1935 essay titled the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. In this essay, Benjamin argues that art has always been reproducible. In sculpture and painting, students copied their masters, scribes copied original manuscripts, and many people simply ripped off major works of art for profit. But the development of mechanical reproduction, Benjamin argues, made for something entirely new. It made it fast and easy. It massively accelerated the pace and possibility of reproduction. And you have to remember this was in 1935 at a time when mass production and assembly lines had been popularized by companies such as Ford. Benjamin took issue with the concept of authenticity. He linked originals to something more intangible and ethereal, saying that even the most perfect reproduction 
of a work of art lacks a unique presence in time and space. It lacks what he calls the aura of the original, or what he designates as the very quality that verifies the object's authenticity. To Benjamin, a work's aura includes all the owners who have held the object, all the hands that have touched it, and all the places that it's been. He does argue that alongside the withering of this intangible aura arises new possibilities. So mechanical reproduction can reveal things that the naked eye may not see in an original, such as in an enlarged photo. Or it can put a copy of the original into situations which would be out of reach for the original itself. This essay, as I said, was published in 1935 when mechanical reproduction wasn't exactly new. Sound film had arrived almost 10 years earlier and photographic reproduction was over a century old. But if we now fast forward to our current era, what we might call, in homage to Benjamin, the age of digital reproduction, many of these possibilities have been extended. Digital reproduction, paired with the internet, most definitely increases the potential reach of objects. And high-resolution imaging of the sort that is recommended for the long-term digital preservation of things can actually reveal details of an image or object that would not be visible to the naked eye. To take one example, Google's Cultural Institute created its own megapixel camera, which can scan artworks in such detail that you can see the thread of the canvas below the brush strokes. And this has the potential to yield new insights into things like the artistic process. And as I noted earlier, even though visitors can often see images from collections online, they are still drawn to see the original. This suggests to me that the aura of the original, which Benjamin talked about three quarters of a century ago, is very well alive and people still want to be in its presence, even if they have access to digital surrogates. People will still long to visit UNESCO's World Heritage Sites, as well as local and foreign galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, even if digital surrogates exist. And of course, we can't forget all about the born digital content we are creating, which brings us back to where I began this podcast. So before I finish, I'd like to note that while organizations can often find good support for digitization programs, it's often harder for them to come by funding for the digital preservation side. And without this, there really is no point in the digitization. So when you think about being able to access the immense treasures of heritage that the world has to offer, think a little bit as well about digital preservation, because it is key to our future enjoyment of that heritage. And as a tiny shout out to my own organization, the Digital Repository of Ireland, I'll leave some links on the Royal Irish Academy website where you found this podcast to show how we are playing a part in preserving and providing access to Ireland's digital heritage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to To Preserve and Protect Contemporary Issues in Irish Cultural Heritage A podcast series from the Royal Irish Academy Funded by the Heritage Council This podcast series was produced by Real Smart Media To listen back to other episodes in the series Check out our page on the Royal Irish Academy's website At rya.ie